0: You're listening to the Tepis Paranormal Talking Point Podcast, a show that discusses various aspects of the paranormal world, with paranormal news, ghost stories, interviews, and much more. And without further ado, let's get into some talking points. Hi guys, Scott here from Tepis Paranormal and welcome back to another episode of the Tepis Paranormal Talking Point Podcast. So today I'm joined by Professor Jeff Meldrum. Jeff is a Professor of Anatomy and Anthropology at Idaho State University. Jeff's also considered an expert in the Sasquatch, or Bigfoot. I had a chance to sit down with Jeff, and we talked about a number of different things, ranging from the various types of Bigfoot-like creatures around the world, where Bigfoot's hiding in North America, as well as discussing a number of famous Bigfoot cases. So sit back and enjoy the interview. So thank you, Jeff, for joining me. Mm -hmm. Um, pleasure. so if you wouldn't mind, if you could sort of introduce yourself a little bit.
1: Sure. Uh, My name's uh, Jeff Meldrum. I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, where I teach uh, human gross anatomy in the health professions programs and research the evolution of human bipedalism. And uh, as a result of that, um, especially the the uh, functional morphology of the foot and uh, the fossil record of that uh, uh, set of adaptations, uh, that's what brought me into um, an involvement with the, the question of other relic hominoids, and especially the footprint evidence where my attention, my professional uh, expertise has been applied most to, most focusedly
0: perfect so i've read online from a few other interviews you've done that obviously you weren't always a believer in uh bigfoot that sort of thing and then mm-hmm. at some point that obviously changed
1: well i don't i don't like the label of believer mm-hmm. because as a scientist uh, and i know it's not intended to, uh in a pejorative way but um, but as a scientist, belief has, has really nothing to do with it. It's, it's all about how convincing, how compelling is the evidence, uh, short of a conclusive uh, proof. And oftentimes, um, you know, what I call ideological skeptics use the moniker true believer as a, as a derogatory term. And, and to your common, you know, to your man on the, or woman on the street, um, the the term belief typically has a connotation of faith, um, uh, an acceptance or conviction held essentially in the absence of conclusive evidence. Not sure we're a little bit short of conclusive evidence, but it's but I'm convinced on the basis of the evidence. So I, I've always been intrigued. I mean, since I was first introduced to this topic as a youngster, you know, clear back in 1968 when uh, Patterson was uh, publicly showing his film you know it, it uh, intrigued me uh i i must admit as i became uh or i was periodically exposed to it later in my academic career uh, enough time had transpired and i'd not kept a pace of of the developments um, the scientific developments and it seemed that if you know it, as so many uh assume if there really was something to this, uh, something would have been resolved by now. And so I did enter in uh, somewhat skeptical. I mean, I was objective. I believe, though, not not cynical about the topic. And as my familiarity with the evidence, and especially being able to evaluate the footprint evidence from a position of expertise, now um, it I had a very different perception of of uh, Of what this was and uh, you know the the um, substance of the question and its implications the implications of the answer to that question so and it's been an interesting i mean even that uh, position has evolved tremendously over the past what 20 plus years that i've been uh, uh involved with this um it uh You know, I I like to say now it's well, it's really true that now I think science is finally just kind of caught up and converging with the some of the fundamental um, uh, propositions, allegations, assertions of of this very intriguing question. Uh, When I first became involved, you know, there there was a lot about it that seemed very counterintuitive, very contradictory to the conventional wisdom of anthropology of that time and and that has has changed dramatically there's been a very significant paradigm shift in anthropology in our our perception of the the pattern and process of human evolution and now the prospect of the possible existence of relic hominoid species is is uh, very um plausible and in fact very probable given given the recent turn of events with the proliferation of of uh, discovered species and the recognition of a much more diverse bushy phylogenetic tree. So.
0: Okay. So obviously during that, you mentioned the uh, Patterson uh, Gimlin film. Mm-hmm. I think that's, I guess that's one of the most well-known pieces of uh, Bigfoot media, Bigfoot evidence. Um, what are your thoughts on that film?
1: Oh, I've and I've looked at that film uh, in in so many different ways and and so many times. Uh, I'm as convinced as I could be, short of having stood there on the sandbar at the time, that it is the real uh, the real McCoy, the real deal. Uh, if if I only had the footprints associated with that event, I would be convinced of the credibility. But to have not only this this very um, well-documented uh set of footprints the ones that roger cast are the ones that bob titmus cast and and even a couple others that have surfaced over the years but to actually have the film of the track maker so you know i can i can infer functional morphology based on the signatures the dynamic signatures uh, evident in the footprints evident to my eye and to others who are who are so um, informed but then to have that inference confirmed by the actual movements the actual kinematics and dynamics of the of the step of the uh figure in the film just uh, absolutely corroborates confirms those interpretations so it's it's um yeah it it has stood up under under repeated scrutiny as new technologies have been applied to its analysis it, it emerges even more intriguing, more, more uh, consistent. It anticipated, but again, we were talking about science catching up. The film presents a number of of odd combinations of traits that, in 1967, literally it's the grain of conventional wisdom in anthropology, and that was the reason for the sort of knee-jerk rejection by the experts, is they couldn't accommodate it. There was no no, um, uh, context, no cubbyhole that would accommodate um, another bipedal species in addition to Homo homo sapiens. And uh, now, uh, some 50 plus years later, those, at the time, odd combinations are exactly the mosaic um, uh, combination of features that we now recognize mm-hmm. for early bipedal hominids. And so it's, I mean, it's amazing. You know, you, you might give Roger the benefit of one lucky, uh, guess or whoever was co- coaching him. He certainly couldn't have, uh, contrived it on his own. Um, I mean, it, it, even if it was, a um, a legitimate, uh, realistic possibility that, that that it was a hoax that it was just a man in a pursuit but how could he get a half a dozen different uh combinations of unique traits yeah uh right right on the right on the nose you know so that that to me i mean is a way a very compelling very persuasive way to consider the the evidence of that film
0: and i think like you say it's I guess it's a number of traits that at the time weren't things that people knew to, you know, to hoax and to fake to make it convincing. It's things absolutely. that I guess have been discovered since that are now, mm-hmm. you know, scientific Absol- fact.
1: Yep, absolutely. One, one of my favourites is um, John Napier, a, a well-known primatologist, British primatologist at the Yerkes, uh, or I'm sorry, at the Smithsonian. And uh, he was actually on the panel that viewed the film. He was apparently impressed by this proposition, by the evidence sufficiently that he, he in his golden years, wrote one of the first scientific treatments, uh, first scientific monographs on the, on it. And in that, he came down um, rather negatively on the Patterson-Gimlin film. But he 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 uh, was forthright enough to acknowledge he really couldn't put his finger on. A rationale to justify that opinion. And he said, other than when I look at what's on the what's depicted there from the waist up, it looks essentially like an ape, but from the waist down, it has the limb proportions of a of a human. He said it was nearly impossible to conceive of such a a mosaic, such a hybrid existing in nature. So it must be contrived. Well, isn't is interesting? His book came out in 72, I think it was, uh, by the later next several years. We had the announcement of Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis. And for the first time, we had a uh, representation of this very early bipedal hominin species that included associated crania and postcrania, namely, specifically, the pelvis, the knees, and, and uh, parts of the ankle, and so forth. And how did they describe it in the popular press releases? Isn't this interesting? From the waist up, she looks essentially like a chimpanzee. From the waist down, she looks like a hairy human. I mean, that was the linchpin in Napier's argument to reject the validity of the film. And yet, just a few years later, it's acknowledged as the pattern for early bipedal hominins, uh, of which it's not what. Unexpected or uh, uh, shouldn't be a surprise that that the subject of that film would uh, would uh, emulate in many ways. In fact, if we if you know if we wanted to have a picture of what a robust Australopithecine might look like, and we didn't have the associated stigma, the notoriety of that Patterson-Gimlin film frame, uh, that famous frame, we could lift that and stick it in an introductory text in anthropology to illustrate the the uh conception of what the appearance of a robust australopithecine and it would be spot on in fact i I have a slide i use in one of my presentations where i have uh an illustration by jay Matterness, who's a famous anthropological illustrator showing an encounter between a band of robust australopithecines and and homo habilis wielding their little pebble tools and and uh you know it looks just like a group of of uh of uh, Sasquatch there, only on a slightly smaller scale, but it uh, is remarkably convergent, uh, remarkably parallel.
0: Okay, Um, so one thing that I'm curious about, and this is something that I don't think there's going to be a, or there's not going to be a definitive answer to, what would you, or what do you think are the sort of numbers for Sasquatch worldwide?
1: Worldwide, well, well, first, let me uh, dispel a, a common misconception that that all reports of of wild men of uh, of one form or another are equivalent to Sasquatch, just different iterations of Sasquatch. There, there are, as I mentioned, I, uh, we now perceive of the pattern of human and hominin, a uh, hominid rather, uh, the the apes' evolution as being. Uh, a bushy tree with numerous branches. So, at any given time in the past, there's a uh, there's potentially a, a number uh, of uh, sympatric or at least contemporaneous species. So, not all of these reports are of of uh, Sasquatch type creatures. I I think you know, it's interesting. I, 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 there is a lot of uh, merit i think to be put to be placed on ivan sanderson's thesis in his uh, very pioneering book an encyclopedic book where where he's considering this question he calls them absms abominable snowmen in a generic sense uh, but he ends up with four types and it's very easy to uh, align many of the of the accounts of these four different types so but having said that now there is certainly good evidence of kind of a circumpacific uh, distribution, at least, of uh, these, these large-bodied, uh, bipedal, um, either early hominin or uh, or a hominoid, uh, with distribution extending perhaps as far west as the Caucasus Mountains. There's evidence of uh, Sasquatch-like uh, encounters and uh, footprints to corroborate those so but 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 restricting our discussion for just a moment here to to north america i uh, given that they are uh or, or would be a large bodied ape or hominin i mean splitting hairs at which side of the of the fence we're straddling there on at this point because we're we're pretty close to that divergence uh, that area um the natural history would suggest that they are uh long-lived slow or infrequently reproducing slow developing and so populations like that that emphasize a K selection strategy have much much fewer numbers they're they're a top predator um uh or at least the top of their food chain they're om- omnivore and so we and and given the rarity of encounters and and, and even rarer corroboration of such reports by trace or physical evidence uh, they have to be very 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 few in number so without without belaboring uh, I'm not just snatching these numbers out of the air but but by um, taking lots of clues about their behavior their social structure Mm -hmm. probably solitary so forth and so forth looking at examples of repeat appearances of individuals who are recognizable Based on their footprint record. Uh, so we have some sense of a of a range and possibly even you know, a, a, a little insight into longevity when you have an adult footprint that spans that in its appearance and discovery spans about uh, you know, two decades or more as an adult. You know, that says they probably live to be at least 40, 50 years, I would guess. You know, if these creatures, this species is nested within the great apes and humans, um, the life expectancy is pretty consistent throughout. So that range of uh, of uh, you know forty five to sixty years, probably probably pretty good. So it, it doesn't take a lot of numbers to uh, replenish. Given that um, possible social structure, of semi-solitary social structure, a large home range in a temperate forest, Where resources are more scattered, more uh, patchy in their distribution. I would put the estimate in um, North America somewhere between maybe two and 3,000. If you look just at my home state of Idaho, you know, if I look at all the available habitat, I look at um, the distribution of of, uh, other animals based on the productivity of the habitat, like black bear. There's been a published paper that demonstrates a fairly remarkable congruence between bioclimatic factors that seem to determine black bear habitat and where bigfoot is reported not surprising since they both have omnivorous diet Mm -hmm. have probably similar requirements for cover and so forth Um, but to help you appreciate the rarity for idaho i come up with a number um which plugs in very nicely with that overall number Of about oh 150 to maybe 250, which sounds on one hand it sounds like a lot, but then when you realize that in Idaho, in my state, there is an estimated population of black bear of 35,000, so 150 to 250 versus 35,000, and you think about how infrequently you bump into black bear when you're out in the wild, how infrequently you find a black bear skeleton you know, in the wild. And so then it starts to put into perspective, I think, uh, a lot of these questions and challenges that, that are raised.
0: With that again, so obviously the nesting of uh, Sasquatches, um, a lot of, or I believe all of the great apes obviously nest, they set up their own nests, and mm-hmm. Sasquatch nests are a fairly... I don't want to say common, but you know, they're one of the people when people go out looking specifically for sasquatches, they're one of the things that people look for. Mm-hmm. Um what are your sort of thoughts on the nesting for Sasquatches? Because obviously they the nests have to be quite large and um they have I, tell you, I guess they're sort of made of things from nearby areas and you know, mm-hmm. trees, that sort of thing. And you see a lot of like, you know, fallen trees or trees at Awkward angles that they wouldn't naturally fall at, which a lot of people mm-hmm. attribute to Sasquatch. Right. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, in in some of the early literature, there were there were references or mentions of the possibility of nests. There was also debate about what whether what was being observed was something attributable to Sasquatch or just a bear bed, as they were called, where bears will also scrape together detritus and litter uh, to create an insulative layer basically they're sleeping on something that, that separates them from the cold ground that's gonna be a heat sink and draw away body temperature um, but not a lot of you know not a lot of otherwise protection they' they're fairly exposed to the elements there have been similar things like I said attributed to Sasquatch which, exhibit more manipulative behaviors um that we also see evidence of in in as you point out the great apes which either make tree nests where they're up in the boughs but bending the boughs in and folding them plating them and laying on top of them to create a a springy bed a hammock almost like uh versus the the larger body say the male gorillas that just simply pull material up uh and uh and create a pad on on the ground um with sasquatch there have been eyewitness anecdotes that suggest that they sleep out in the open that they just sleep on the ground you know as as many animals do um you know deer or rabbits or whatever they don't always have a den they don't always have a uh a secluded sheltered area but will just sometimes bed down in a hollow and a or a low spot you know they obviously will scrape away some of the um unevenness of the of the leaf litter and or uh, forest litter pine cones and twigs and so forth now some uh, uh, renewed uh, or um, uh, increased attention has been directed to this question with the discovery in the olympic peninsula of washington of some nests that were attributed to Sasquatch um, behavior. These are not found on a on a regular basis. And uh, again, though, it's not like a troop of gorillas making a nightly set of nests on the ground. And and uh, but we're typically talking about um, solitary individuals. I I would assert. In this case, however, when this these nests were found. There was quite a number of them. There, you know, in excess of five, five nests, not of extraordinary size, but big enough that it certainly could accommodate uh, a six to eight foot Sasquatch in a fetal position, uh, uh, resting on this. What was interesting was they were not like your typical bear bed, in that there had been you know green boughs that had been kind of laid down in a springy lattice then forest material piled on top. And then what was most distinctive was uh, this location, this particular location where this was first discovered was behind a a very extensive hedgerow of of evergreen blueberries, which there in that particular region grow to a height of seven or eight feet. And the top foot and a half uh, of the green riggers on the end there had been systematically nipped off and all of these p- not just simply piled but uh, you know it, it looked as if the ends the stem end was shoved into the detritus and then basically they were sort of plated not unlike a gorilla nest to provide a little more springiness and a little more contour a rim uh, you know with the superficial resemblance to a, a bird nest uh, um that that was very atypical and we we confirmed this by when i was finally invited to to come and visit the site um one of the things we did in addition to taking samples of of the detritus and so forth to have it tested for dna we used heavy shears to cut a pie-shaped wedge into this rather circular nest and all that material was carefully lifted out and put it bagged up and taken back and dried and, and spread out and carefully examined under you know, a microscope to identify any fibers. And uh, there were hair found that did in fact appear to be a non-human primate uh, based on the overall uh, anatomy. But um, unfortunately, no, no DNA from the hair. However, from the uh, soil sample the DNA test, the environmental DNA uh, protocols that were applied to that, produced um, uh, one primate, which was identified as human. Now, so certainly there's the potential for contamination because there were eyewitnesses there. There were the investigators on the scene and, you know, we're constantly shedding dander and so forth and skin flakes and so on. Uh, even though care had been taken to keep people away from this particular nest that the samples were eventually taken from, but my argument, I mean, that's one possibility. The second is that um is that there wasn't sufficient DNA sampled uh, sequence, that is, in order to differentiate two very closely related species. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we could be, if this creature is a hominin, it would be much more closely related to us than, than uh, any other living great ape out there. And, you know, the, the uh, figures that are offered in the literature for identity between, say, chimp and gorilla, our closest ally amongst the hominoids mm-hmm. range from, you know, 96 to 98% identity. So this creature could be 99, 99 99.5. I mean, we could be talking about a half a percent, a quarter of a percent difference. And so unless you sequence not only, I think, a representative uh, mitochondrial samples, but include the nuclear genome as well, I think there's a real possibility that that, um, many of these very superficial, very preliminary analyses have have just produced a human result because we're simply looking at segments of the dna that are essentially indistinguishable from our own so so that's kind of where we're at i i don't think that the uh the construction of these types of nests is a universal behavior and a constant or consistently routine nightly behavior Mm -hmm. I suspect that this was kind of a, an unusual su- set of circumstances, given the number of nests. If they were occupied by different individuals, and we have no way of really knowing that. Uh, but one of the things that kind of piqued my imagination was that amongst these these uh, this uh, cluster of nests was one that was poised in the crotch of a, of a little bush right there, up about two feet off the ground and it was a smaller nest that uh uh, you know was only about a foot and a half two feet in diameter and um when i saw it the first the first thought was this looked like a bassinet or as you might see over there a pram (laughs) you know and i and so then the thought occurred to me could this could this assemblage have been the result of a female giving birth, and the the aunties were there to lend support maybe the a male was there to protect the group mm-hmm. within the territory who knows you know uh, but it's intriguing to kind of uh, to kind of s- see that the the investigative group has subsequently prospected other similar settings similar physical settings uh in the region and have found the remains of much older nests that have you know subsequently uh deteriorated down into the ground basically but evidence that uh that that this is a periodic but obviously they didn't come back to this particular site for over five years mm-hmm. so okay then it's yeah
0: so the one thing obviously you sort of mentioned earlier the skeletal remains of these creatures um what are your thoughts on sort of why so few of them are found and you know why i I think like you said earlier there's a very small number so that's obviously one thing but what are your thoughts on those in general
1: yeah well that and that's a good point to mention up front and sort of have in mind as a, as a backdrop. And that is the, the common denominator of low population numbers. And as we also mentioned, um, long life expectancy, uh, relatively long life expectancy, no natural enemies in the wild, uh, uh, at least for adults. And so if they survive infancy, then they, a, a death, is going to be a fairly rare event you know so say take the example of uh, uh, my description of my home state of idaho here in the northern rocky mountains we have probably more roadless wilderness than any of the other 48 states so if you've got 150 to 200 sasquatch how many of those are geriatric how many are in their golden years on the verge of of expiring and um so you narrow that down and and think you know it's not beyond the realm of, of reasonable possibility that a death might occur uh one death maybe in a year or in 10 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so you think about that in context of um, you know the remark about uh, finding bare skeletal yeah. remains my predecessor dr Krantz, used to as he describes in his book would routinely ask audiences how many have ever seen a skeleton of or a skull of a bear that died a natural death or was or that uh, that wasn't hit by a car or shot by a
2: hunter mm-hmm.
1: and in some 20 plus years of asking that he never had a single person volunteer that they had i i don't ask it religiously i don't even ask it regularly but when it comes up when this question comes up i then ask the audience and i've in that time i've had two instances where individuals have have uh, found a bear skull in the wild uh, but they couldn't actually um uh, they couldn't uh, say with certainty that it it wasn't shot by a hunter or yeah. you know, an expired or whatever because they only found the skull and mm-hmm. there was no no complete uh, skeleton. So you know those there are the biological factors, the biotic factors, the uh, factors of, of natural history of the species itself, the, the decomposers, the uh, scavengers, and then there's also the abiotic, the physical environment. Um, these creatures uh, seem to prefer wet coniferous forests which have notoriously acidic soils that are not conducive to the preservation of bone unless that bone becomes deposited say in a limestone cave or in in um a riverine uh, in a sedimentary environment um and so uh in in there are limestone caves to be found and i that's one one interesting uh, research angle is i um have have uh, consulted with uh, Uh, avocational and professional spelunkers and uh, if they have ever come across unusual animal bones there are also investigators Um, there's a paleontologist from uh, South Dakota who specializes in the excavation of Pleistocene deposits in limestone caves in the Alaskan panhandle Mm -hmm. and you know he'll go into a cave and they literally excavate the sediment all the way down to bedrock and you know in uh, And they've done that on multiple caves And i've asked him, you know, how many bear uh, Remains have you found in those caves and he said oh very few He says you could probably count the numbers on on your uh, Your hand the only time they ever find these, you know, sometimes you'll see these spectacular photos of a of an entire Articulated bear skeleton in a cave well, these are bears that have denned in the cave and have been trapped in there by a cave in and uh, that has sealed the cave and therefore their remains uh, were left there undisturbed. Mm-hmm. But those are rare. I mean, in, in the hundreds of thousands of years that those could have occurred, you know, there's only a few pictures you can find yeah. online, those exceptional cases of preservation. I actually, you know, asked him, I was very, very forthright in my Um, in in introducing myself and and my interest in talking to him about this question. And and I I simply asked him, I said, well, uh, uh, for a moment, assume that these creatures exist based on, you know, your, your uh, uh, exposure, your knowledge of them. If that were the case, would it surprise you that you have not walked out of one of your caves with a giant primate molar? Mm -hmm. And he said, no it doesn't surprise him at all given the rarity and and you know the the actual real life example since we were talking about a circumpacific distribution one possibility as a candidate or at least as an analog is uh, gigantopithecus which we know as a species existed mm-hmm. had a 1.5 million year tenure as a species in east asia and yet, for all that time—1.5 million years—we've got two jaws and a few thousand isolated teeth, and we only have them because porcupines dragged those remains into these karst, these limestone caves, where they became preserved under those alkaline conditions. They all show the gnawing uh, activities of the porcupines. Now, were there not limestone caves, were there not porcupines, or other? rodents to concentrate those bones in the cage we would have no idea of this 800 pound gorilla that lived in east asia yeah now sasquatch may have only been in this continent a couple hundred thousand years for all we know depending on when the expansion of its range into the north american continent occurred so it could be a fairly recent interloper and the chances of uh, finding one of those very rare preservation of a fossilized um, skeleton is you know it's it's not un it's not unimaginable that uh, we haven't found that uh you know golden ticket yet. at yeah, that brass, of course yeah.
0: yeah um so from the sort of worldwide pool of creatures and different things that fit under this sort of general bracket of yeah. sasquatch-like creatures right. Um do you have any outside of north america any sort of particular sightings or any particular stories that are a favorite of yours
1: Oh sure sure there um i mean one of the that, that i find really intriguing and had a chance to look into it a little bit uh, in person is uh you know building on the work of Boris porzhnev and Mary jean Kaufman in uh in the mountain ranges uh, bordering mongolia the the uh, uh, Tian Shan, Altai, Pamir ranges, and then down the Caucasus range, as I mentioned, I had the opportunity to visit uh, the Caucasus and spend some time there. And um, you know these these sightings, uh, and, and, and particularly interesting. I mean, the, we weren't just barking up any any old tree, but one of the things we were investigating there had been a very well um, with a, a widely witnessed encounter um with uh, uh, an impressive set of footprints which measured about 16 inches long which bore remarkable resemblance to uh any number of examples in in my collection of sasquatch tracks in fact if i took we, we were able to replicate a right and a left that had been cast by a local naturalist who actually owned and ran a natural history museum mm-hmm. in that That village, that or that town, small town out in the rural town. But um, if I took those casts and intermingled them with my collection, you wouldn't be able to pick them out. It's distinct from the others. They're they're that that similar, and uh, it was quite intriguing to have. I I brought along with me a little uh, small three ring binder with a sampling of illustrations of some of the footprints and the casts, some of which. uh illustrated a uh, feature that has taken on a very central um uh prominence in the description of the um uh adaptation the architecture of the Sasquatch foot its distinction from the new foot which is a very flat flexible foot that has uh sometimes leaves a very distinctive mid-tarsal pressure ridge because of the flexibility of the midfoot mm-hmm. and i had several illustrations depicting the examples of that and my interpretation of that and this fellow when he saw that we, we were showing it to uh, um there was another uh, gentleman who is a prominent citizen he's actually on the you know state politician but he uh is a very avid um naturalist and uh, his daytime job is he he's a professional guide and takes groups back into the into the mountains on uh, nature tours, mm-hmm. eco tours, but so we had a chance to visit with him, and he was just getting one of his groups ready to take him up in the mountains, and we 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 uh, ran into him, and he's flipping through my three-ring binder, and he saw that depiction of the mid tarsal pressure ridge, and he immediately knew what it was, and had seen examples when this creature was walking up a a, a steeper slope, and and was transitioning onto the fore part of the foot and produced a pressure ridge. You know, I was really impressed at, uh, of that, that, uh, uh, insight that he uh, had already picked up on. But anyway, so that, um, in a, so that's a Sasquatch like tide, but you asked about the others. The reason, the other reason we were in the Caucasus is because there have been numerous reports of more man-like hairy wild men, mm-hmm. uh, relic hominoids. And this region is uh, within the, um, the inferred uh, range of the Neanderthal, uh, thought to be extinct. But yet here are these reports of creatures who now in this case leave footprints that are more human sized that do show an arch, but have a very robust, very splayed foot. Um, but these creatures are described as being more human-sized, but still covered with hair, um, but more intelligent, more not less animal-like, more human-like, in that they try to interact even with the locals. Um, there's the famous work of uh, Myra Shackley, a British archaeologist who did her thesis work in uh, this general region on uh, Neanderthals, archaeological sites attributed to Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And, they would actually collect these Mousterian spear points, these, these uh, stereotypical stone tools of the of the Neanderthals. When shown to the local residents, they would look at them and say, "Oh yeah, the Almas make those, or the Almasti. They had different. The Almasti make those. Why are you interested in them?" <laughs> and that she would say, "Well, the Almasti. Who are the Almasti? Oh, they're these." These backward people, like kind of, you know, they sort of hillbillies as they, as they yeah. describe them. These backwards people that live up in the mountains, they're covered with hair, you know, these wild people. And uh, we trade with them once in a while, you know, but pretty much we leave them alone, they leave us alone.
2: Think- and so it was just
1: a matter of fact that she was impressed with the consistency of the reports and description of this, that she actually went out on a significant uh, professional limb. And published uh, not only had a, a manuscript published in, um, I think it was uh, an Archaeology Journal of Archaeology, but also published a, a monograph, a book. Uh, ha- is under a couple of different titles depending on which side of the pond you're on. Over here, it was still living the Big uh, the Neanderthal, Sasquatch, and Yeti enigma, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, she's no longer in academia, unfortunately. But but it was uh, an interesting contribution and uh, made a lot of the literature from uh, due to, you know, as a result of her uh, research, uh, pursuing her doctorate, a lot of that literature and a lot of the uh, foreign publications she made available to Anglophones and a very uh, significant contribution.
0: Cool. So I think, like you say, one of the things that interests me with that is, i know there's a large number of uh, tribes in you know south america and generally across the globe that are completely separate from um you know from i guess modern civilization yes and i guess it's completely plausible in a similar route that in the same sort of way these sort of tribes are less uh, evolved and less advanced than you know some of the other modern civilizations hmm
1: technologically and culturally or well not culturally. i should say that um uh, but technologically less advanced but they that they are unquestionably modern homo sapiens and they and, and it's interesting you know the fact that they some of these have remained so elusive uh they are social there are large groups of them they live in villages they have they have structures, you know, they have villages and homes and so forth. And, uh, you know, so you can imagine how much more elusive, how much more um, uh, cryptic they would be if we were talking about single individuals that uh, slept on the ground, you know, that left, that had no material culture, that left no archeological record, no, no material, Uh, evidence of their passing um so yeah i think you know in in each of these cases i mean take take the Almasti for example many of the indigenous people say that there used to be but they no longer exist that they that they are extinct they're gone they don't have reports of them anymore Mm -hmm. and so there's that very real possibility um the the Yeti, if if indeed there is an uh, as yet unrecognized species of, uh, and I think ape, the the only suggestion of footprint evidence is, is very rare, and the only real convincing ones, because um, there's a lot of conflation with bear as well, uh, some some really silly uh, conflation, and, um, but there's also a lot of ambiguity in in fossils i'm sorry in footprints yep. that are attributed to the yeti that are essentially unintelligible uh, from melting and sublimation the the spore is so distorted you couldn't tell me what it is your life depended on it yep. but of those couple of two or three they clearly have a divergent big toe it is a more ape-like foot so the yeti if it exists is probably a very relic very rare population of of ape that is um uh, has been sequestered in these high temperate valleys temperate forested valleys of mm-hmm. the of the foothills of the Himalayas the other one is uh, very likely is the um uh known by a number of names the orang pendek idutu mm-hmm. or ibugogo and due uh, and so forth um that uh has gained more attention uh, in uh subsequent to the discovery of homo floresiensis the hobbit i mean now suddenly we've got a fossil that uh, is of a a hominin uh certainly not homo it was a real mistake and uh, a misdirection to call it homo but it it's almost certainly a late australopithecine maybe an early homo habilis even there splitting, you know, those, the, the I'm more of the camp that, that thinks we should move Homo to Homo or Agaster and Erectus and that the previous are basically uh, advanced Australopithecines, but I mean, splitting hairs, advanced Australopithecines or, uh, or early Homo you know, it's like, what, what do you call it? So, you know, rose by any other name, but nevertheless, uh, here we've got the, these creatures in Southeast Asia, that uh, may have persisted until just a few tens of thousands of years ago if not to the present Um, and that's the funny thing you know these those who discovered the fossils and drew attention to their recent vintage also kind of sheepishly acknowledged in a way I guess that's maybe that's an unfair characterization but did acknowledge publicly that oh and by the way The locals have been telling us stories about these little hairy people that live up in the mountains all along. So maybe they aren't gone, you know, maybe they aren't altogether gone. And there's been some great um, uh, research published recently. Um, Dr. Gregory Forth from the University of Alberta uh, just published a book for a more general audience looking at the probability of connecting these dots. Mm -hmm and um it makes a very he makes a very compelling case so so those are that and then there's a few others kind of uh tossed in for good measure there was recently a a book that uh drew attention to reports of some sort of relic hominoid in um in south africa Mm -hmm. and um you know what and there and there are other stories they don't get as much attention because you know africa has its share of of uh, known relic hominoids, and they really are relics, these these uh, populations of chimpanzees and uh, mountain and lowland gorillas and bonobos, you know, they're in many instances, the mountain gorillas particularly are just, you know, hanging on by their fingernails, and, yeah. and they are a relic population, but um, there's the possibility of uh, uh, based on eyewitness encounters of other bipedal, fully bipedal, hominin-like um, creatures that uh, are found in Africa. So there's a few others um, in, in various places that might um, be additional branches. Wouldn't be a surprise. I don't think it's a stretch. There was actually a time, you know, when I was kind of reluctant to talk about or to bring up these other, I mean, it's one thing to <laughs> to potentially be labeled as, as nuts because you're, Entertaining one creature, but then to suggest there's four or, or more, but but actually, I think it's reinforcing because it it lends substance to this now this uh, much more acknowledged pattern of evolution that there is this bushy tree and that you might expect differing branches yeah. in different um, geographical regions that represent uh, various persistent lineages rather than just just one certainly more than us
0: mm-hmm. cool. so i think that brings us to the end of the questions i had there um okay. is there anything else you wanted to add
1: well i just uh, give a a shameless plug for for my publications obviously a good handle uh a good jumping off point for uh, an understanding of the Science behind the legend of Sasquatch is my book, Sasquatch Legend meets Science, and it still is a very, um, uh, even though it's now a little bit dated, two thousand six. It still is a very good uh, and and uh, repletely illustrated introduction to this subject uh, with with some some meat on the bones for those. There's also uh, for more contemporary discussions of this subject. I edit an online journal, The Relic Hominoid Inquiry. Uh, Myself as the managing editor, but we have a full blown editorial board of PhDs and other appropriate professionals that um, uh, provides a venue for discussion of of, uh, scholarly works, reviews, commentaries, research articles, technical notes, and so forth. Uh, We're in our 12th year now. But it is the Relic Hominoid Inquiry, easy to Google, or it's isu.edu slash RHI. And uh, that's an excellent, uh, also an excellent source of, of uh, contemporary information.
0: Perfect. I'll, um, I'll put links to that in the description of the YouTube video for this uh, interview. But yeah, Very good. With that, I think that brings us to the end. So thank you so much for joining me, Jeff, and I'll catch you yep. soon.
1: All right. Thank
0: you. Thanks. Once again, I'd like to give a big thank you to Jeff for joining me. If you want to check out any of Jeff's publications or want to know more about Jeff, you can find his social links in the description of the YouTube version of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a blast getting to talk to Jeff about Bigfoot. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I've been Scott from Tapper's Paranormal, and I'll see you soon.